great to be. Well, hello, girls and gays. Hola. Welcome to episode 15 of Reykjavik Recreate. Wow. I'm Sammy Purcell. I know, I know. It's really I'm crazy. I'm Sammy Purcell. And I'm Logan Keller. And I did that a little weird, so we're going to go with it, but here we go. Um, so, Logan, my question for you is, when was the last time you cried, barring when you watched these shows that we're going to talk about today? Because today. today. Today? Yeah, I got stressed at work. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's totally I'm a crier, though. I'm a cancer. I'm not afraid to let out my emotions, and I frequently do that by crying. I am also a crier um i watched independence day this weekend and started mm. tearing up a little bit which is stupid but i did i cried when vivica a fox and will smith were united just and a I little bit was sobbing when i watched <laughs> both of these shows this week me too um well that brings us to i'll explain a little bit what this show is about so each week logan and i pick a show based on a category we rate that show on a scale of one to 10, debate which one is better, and then think of one aspect we would change and recreate it because we're the experts. And you're not. And you're not. <laughs> and neither is Jason Robert Brown. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't know shit. Just kidding. But each week, like I said, we have a category, and this week that category is Sob Fest. And wow. my show is parade <laughs> and my show is falsettos it's gonna be a sad one folks it um, really is <laughs> it's really rough yeah i don't have much to say other than that it's gonna be sad um i have a lot of things to say about parade there's a lot going on um, and you're also fresh out of watching falsettos like yes, I literally minutes ago yeah I just finished falsettos about 10 minutes ago I texted Logan because I was crying I still <laughs> am a little snotty <laughs> so I apologize if that comes through in my voice but I guess I had started with a little summary of parade which is so funny to me because I did you learn about this growing up before we get into what it's about no about this case okay. no so it happened like literally right down the street from where i am right now so like we knew about it growing up and i remember like when i found out this was a musical i was like they made a musical out of that that's weird and dark but okay um but i actually learned while doing this that so parade i guess i'll just get started parade is a musical with a book by alfred Uri. Uri? i'm not sure if i'm saying that correctly and then music and lyrics by jason robert brown and it's a dramatization of the 1913 trial, imprisonment, and the 1915 lynching of Jewish American Leo Frank in Georgia. Um, so he was convict, accused and convicted of raping and murdering a 13-year-old girl named Mary Fagan. He was the superintendent at a pencil factory where Mary worked and where she was found. And today, a lot of people believe that he did not do it and that he was falsely accused and wrongly convicted. And then, I mean, anyone who's lynched is wrongly lynched, so. But it took place in Marietta, or at least, um, I think actually most of the story itself takes place in Atlanta. I was at the Fulton County um, Superior Courthouse. So that is literally right down the street. But he was killed 
in Marietta, which is where Mary Fagan is from and very close to where I am from. So the interesting thing that I found out about this because I did not know this, but so Jason Robert Brown did the music and lyrics and then the book writer, Alfred Uwe, grew up here. Uri, Uri, not sure. His great uncle owned the pencil factory. So like he has a personal connection to the story, which I, I, yeah, I like really liked that. Yeah, it was nice. But basically the musical, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I'm kind of going to go through like some of the case stuff later on, like look at the actual history of it. Um, But the musical kind of looks at like anti-Semitism in Atlanta at the time, racism in the South at the time, and kind of just like this general distrust of the outsider or the other and kind of a longing of Southerners to get back to the quote unquote good old days. So like the musical opens with a Confederate soldier during the Civil War from Marietta and he's like shipping off to war. He's singing a song that is like, it's like bad because he's like, yes, let's go kill some Northerners. It's a really good song at the same time. It's a great opener. Basically at the end of the song, we fast forward to 1913 and the young soldier is now like an old man. He's hurt, he's crippled and he is like kind of longing for this time before the Civil War during Confederate Memorial Day, which is a parade that they used to have every year. So that's kind of where it opens up and like kind of connects those themes that I mentioned before into the story. And then basically just follows the story of Leo Frank chronologically. So we meet Mary Fagan. Um, We see her go to collect her pay from Leo Frank at the factory that day. We don't actually see any violence or the murder on, on stage or anything. And then basically the trial just unfolds. There are different people who are liked for it at first. I'll get into this when I talk about it, but the way the story unfolds, specifically in this version, like without a doubt, Leo Frank is framed for this murder by the prosecutor, whose name is Dorsey, who ended up being elected um, to be governor of the state after this twice. So (laughs) yes, I guess I'll really get into the rest of it later, but it goes through the story chronologically. You know, he's accused, he's convicted. About a couple years later, some people start recanting their testimony and say that they were kind of coerced into saying things that weren't really true by the prosecutor. And the governor at the time um, decides to commute um, Leo Frank's death sentence to just life in prison, which like, great. But um, I mean, it is great. But at the same time, yeah. And this enrages the citizens of Atlanta, Marietta, so much that a group of 20 men go to the prison where he was in Milledgeville, which is pretty far away, and um, kidnap him, take him back to Marietta, and kill him. And this actually, like, the events surrounding this investigation led to the revival of the KKK in Georgia, which is really fucked up, and also the birth of the Jewish Civil Rights Organization, the Anti-Defamation League. So that's good. I know that was kind of long and convoluted, but I'll get into kind of some of the more historical stuff and like a little more about these people because one of my kind of qualms with the show is I think like it's hard to give enough context for what's actually going on. And I think the show struggles a little bit with that, but I'm going to rate Parade. I was hovering between like seven and eight. I think I'm going to go eight out of 10. Go on, go on, go on, go on, which is a song, like the only song, or not the only song, but the 
one of the cute songs in the show that Mary Fagan gets, like a boy is flirting with her on the bus and he's trying to get her to go to the movies with him. And she's like, oh, go on, go on, go on. Like she's supposed to like, shut up, leave me alone. But she's kind of flirting with him too. Wow, what a show. What a show. Um, <laughs> so my show this week is Falsettos. Um, so I'm going to start a little bit about the origin of Falsettos because it's pretty interesting. So it's it's written by William Finn, um, who did the book, music, and lyrics, and then James Lapine also worked on the book with Finn. And initially, um, it, Falsettos is actually based on a little trilogy of one acts that William Finn did called In Trousers, March of the Falsettos, and Falsetto Land. And Falsettos is basically a combination of March and the Falsettos and Falsetto Land. And all of those one acts revolved around Marvin, um, this like character that William Finn created who was in a marriage um, with his wife, Trina, and their son, Jason. And he is like figuring out that he's gay and coming to terms with that. And so basically we get to Falsettos, the musical, combination of March of the Falsettos and Falsetto Land. And where we start is he has already come out to his wife, well, <laughs> come out's uh, maybe the wrong word to use. She walked in on him hooking up with <laughs> this guy who had become his boyfriend. And the story is kind of like this, this weird family of like uh, ex-husband and wife, husband's new lover, son, and the psychiatrist who sees <laughs> them all basically. And yeah. then marries the wife, Trina. <laughs> uh, this like weird little family in the... Um, I think it takes place in 1980 in the first act and 82 in the second act. So yeah, that that is the the basic premise. Um, one one way it's diff, it still fits into the category of Sobfest, but I think it's pretty different than Parade. Yeah. Is that the tone is really really comedic for the majority for I would say almost the entirety of the first act and then a good portion of the second act as well. Obviously there's there's trouble and seriousness written in, but all in the tune of like this being one big wacky situation and it's mm -hmm. very lighthearted. Um, and then it takes a really steep turn <laughs> and is really tragic. And um, yeah, I, I won't spoil exactly. I will actually. Wizard, yeah. the new boyfriend, contracts AIDS and dies. And it's, it's really, really tragic. And everyone yeah. in the show has their own way of coping with it. I'll say, I have a lot of thoughts about this show. So I'll save anything outside of that for the description of it. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rate for the second week in a row, I'm going to give this show 10 out of 10. Stephanie J. Block bananas that lived in her mouth while she belted the fuck out of I'm Breaking Down. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. Well, I'm right there with you. I've never seen this before and I thought it was so good. So I'm also going to give it a 10 out of 10. Hey. I thought it was incredible. I thought everyone, it's on um, Broadway HD. If anyone wants to watch it, I do yeah. a subscription. You can watch like the new revival with Stephanie J. Block, with Christian Borle, with Andrew Rannells, and they're all mwah, fantastic. Everyone else is fantastic too. <sighs> yeah, I really loved it. It was great. Yeah, I agree. I, I straight up love this show. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's a 10 for me. And I'm going to give Parade. Um, I 
I actually had an interesting experience where I went okay. into this thinking I was going to like it less than I actually did. Like it kind of was better than I expected it to be. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm also going to give it an eight out of 10. Awesome. I was coming in expecting it to be a five or six for me. Really? Why is that? Um, I, okay. I also have to admit, I was pretty unfamiliar. I, I knew like a very basic premise of the show, yeah. but for the most part, was unfamiliar and then I like did a really quick glossary search and just saw that it was about a lynching mm -hmm. and assumed I think right away that it was an African-American story and we'll A was that. like yeah it was just kind of like I don't know and then B being like Jason Robert Brown <laughs> writing <laughs> I just was like I don't know yeah. Um, obviously it's about a lot it's like a, a different storyline in general mm -hmm. but that was part of it I also like I'm not a huge Jason Robert Brown guy. I know, that's um, where we differ. He, <laughs> I'm a slut for Jason Robert Brown. You are, you really are. <laughs> yeah, but there are some bops in Parade. And there are some bops in his other works too. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, speaking of the actual story behind Parade, I am going to talk a little bit about like the actual history and kind of go through what actually happened and like why people were um, accused and like who were the suspects and all that kind of stuff and what people like think actually happened now. And then I'm gonna talk about a couple of like context things I think are issues with Parade. And then I'm gonna go into stuff that I really like about it because there are like two, one really major thing and then another one, which I think is a big deal, but I'm not sure they could have changed anything if they wanted to tell the story like chronologically the way they did. Okay, so I'm going to start with a little bit about Leo Frank. So he was born in Texas, actually, and then moved to Brooklyn when he was very young. And then went to Cornell, like very smart, and then started working at the, Nas the National Pencil Company in Atlanta in 1908 and became superintendent pretty fast. He married Lucille, and he said that they had a pretty happy marriage and I can't really find much about the marital issues that are kind of depicted in the show itself like in the show he's depicted as being very, like, very cold very unfeeling kind of like obsessed with his job obsessed with himself I'm not quite sure about how accurately their marriage is depicted, but most of the stuff in, in the musical is like pretty historically accurate so I'm wondering if they just had access to things that I did not and it also seems like they really wanted to focus on the relationship in a way that like would make the tragedy at the end like that much more apparent even it is apparent anyway but just kind of to make it like feel a little more tragic another thing that's true about atlanta at this time is that it has the largest jewish community in the south which i didn't like know but makes sense when you think about it it's a little bit about mary fagan and then kind of going into the murder so she was born in like a farmer's community when she was little and then they moved to Marietta shortly after she was born. Her father died, so she just lived with her mom. And she left school at about 10 to start working, which is, like, pretty common at the time. Um, she was laid off, actually, the day, like, the day depicted in the musical. And I don't think they say this, but she's been laid off, basically. So she was on her way to, like, collect her last pay. So Newt Lee, who's the watchman, the night watchman, found her at about 3 a.m., and also found like two notes by her head, which I also don't think are really talked about in the musical at all, but end up like becoming kind of important to what happens next. I'm not gonna read them out loud, um, but basically like she, I don't know, 
why anyone thought like she ever wrote these because she was 13 and dying but like basically implicates the watchman newt who's a black man in her murder there are two notes and one thing that's weird about them that comes up later is that the phrase night watch man is just night witch so she like mentions a night witch every couple like sentences and they can't figure out what that is and then they're like oh i think she means night watchman lee is then like they try to get a hold of him they can't get a hold of him they find him the next morning like take him to go see or not lee sorry leo it's confusing leo frank they call him the next morning like tell him what's going on apparently he was like really fidgety and weird but like wouldn't you be fidgety and weird and nervous if that happened at a place where you were like in charge and the boss so i don't think that's that weird um newt lee the night watchman ends up being arrested they found like a bloody shirt in his house but then they like come to believe later that it was a plant because they said it like doesn't seem like it's been worn like it just seems like there's just no like armpit stains or whatever and then later on they do end up arresting Leo Frank and like some girls do actually come forward and say like he which just happens in the musical say he was weird to me or he used to invite me up to his office he made advances and then a boy who knows Mary who I don't think his name was Frankie but in the musical his name is Frankie he also comes forward and says that Mary the day she was killed said she was like scared of Leo Frank basically Jim Conley who also comes into this picture he is now believed, I think, by a lot of historians to be the actual killer. Um, so a man matching his description was seen there the night of, and his handwriting matches the notes they found. And then they asked him to write like Night Watchman down, and he wrote Night Witch. So they think like that matches. And he comes out kind of when they pin him on that and like says that Leo Frank did it and then asked him for help. So like admits to being an accomplice, but basically that he'll testify against Leo Frank if, you know, that gives him like a year. I think he only got a year for being an accomplice. Um, in the musical, they say he's an escaped convict. I couldn't find anything that substantiated that because they kind of make that seem like the impetus for him deciding to go against Leo Frank is that like he wouldn't have to go back to jail. Couldn't find anything about that. Um, Jim Conley is also black so like that is an important context for this as well. Hugh Dorsey who's the prosecutor like I said was elected twice as governor after winning this case and it was kind of a big deal for him like there was a lot in the newspaper at the time the Atlanta Journal Constitution I think at that time it might have been like the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution but whatever <laughs> um, they merged at some point. He there was like a bunch of stuff in the news about how like if he loses one more case, like he's out of here or whatever, like blah, blah, blah. So this was important for him, which I'm going to talk about kind of like the politics and the opportunism of this later. And yeah, so Leo Frank ends up going to jail. He's convicted. Two years later, a bunch of stuff comes out. So like the timeline becomes a big deal because the defense like has witnesses saying that Leo Frank was not around at the time of the supposed death. They also based a lot of their case apparently on a hair they found outside of Leo Frank's office because they said that the murder took place in like the room across from his office and then they moved her body down to the basement but the hair they found by the office ends up not being hers it's some other girl who happens to work there a woman who originally came forward and said that Frank had called her looking for a room so he could have like a romantic liaison 
with a girl, admitted that that never happened, and two detectives encouraged her to make it up. The boy who said that he, that Mary said she was afraid of Frank, also came forward later and said that investigators basically, like, told him to say that and pressured him into saying that. So the governor at the time, his name is Slatton, looks over all of this in, 20, in 1915 and decides that he can't say for sure whether Leo Frank is innocent or not, but he can say that things were done poorly in this case. And new evidence has come out. So he commutes the sentence and that's when the lynching happens. So now I kind of want to go over some context that I think is like missing from Parade I think adding it in, it's two hour musical. It's over two hours long, it's really long musical. It's a lot of context to shove in, but I think it would have helped. So like the first is, I think the musical oversimplifies a little bit of like what makes Leo Frank an outsider and also like kind of the mood and the anti-Semitism that was like taking place in Georgia at the time in Atlanta too. So in the musical we're introduced to Leo and our context like for why he doesn't fit in is pretty, in my opinion, kind of rudimentary. Like a lot of it seems to boil down to the fact that he doesn't like anyone, like he doesn't like these people. I think he says like these men belong in zoos and a couple of other stuff. And the little bit of context that we actually get for like what's going on in the Jewish community at this time in Georgia is also pretty small. So he says something in his, one of his first songs, he says, the Jews are not Jews. And on a small conversation with Lucille, she asks him like why he uses a Jewish term and you know he's like why don't you like you're Jewish and she says yeah I'm Jewish and basically says like but I'm not wanting it if that makes like that kind of interaction yeah. and those are kind of like the small interactions we get and that is was like a big deal apparently in the early 1900s in Atlanta so in the early 1900s Rabbi David Marks was like a big figure in the Jewish community um, I got a lot of this from an Atlanta Jewish Times article by Bob Barr so he did an interview with um, the author Mark Bauman, who wrote a book kind of about this. And David Marks seems like a kind of complicated figure. He worked for social justice, worked with Black leaders in the community, but he was like very pro-assimilation as far as like the Jewish community went. So he was against using Hebrew in worship. His temple adopted like very Americanized appearances. And he thought that Jewish immigrants who did not assimilate would only make anti-Semitism the state worse. Another important piece of context is at the time, a lot of people were leaving the countryside to come work in factories in the city, particularly young girls. And a lot of men, particularly rural men, found this degrading for girls and women. And just so happens, a lot of Jewish men ran these factories. So that tension kind of hit and fueled anti-Semitism. Um, Dorsey has a quote in the musical where he says, basically, it's going to take more than killing one Black person to make people feel better. It's like a horrible, fucked up thing to say. And I don't, I think the context of that statement isn't given the full weight if you don't have like a little bit more of this. Like Mary Fagan's yeah. murder is sort of the culmination of like two things happening at once. One is that like anti-Semitism in Georgia is really bad at this time. And the other thing is like more women and girls are starting to work in factories, again, that happen to be run by a lot of Jewish men. And those things kind of like hit when this little girl was murdered. So I think like 
I'm not sure if the show captures that tension like incredibly well. I think it like decides to focus on the relationships a little bit more, which I get like, I think that's what they wanted to do. And it's a lot of context to shove into a two hour musical, like I said, but still, I think it would have like helped a little bit more. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to say, um, so I just thought it was interesting when you said you saw lynching and you like assumed it was a black person. Um, so part of the reason the story sparked national controversy in the first place is because Leo Frank is white. And like the justice system had in the South had been corrupt forever. I mean, like, like you said, I think we associate lynchings with black people, especially around that time. And so it's interesting and kind of fucked up that this got national attention when so many others didn't. And I think the musical, just by virtue of like wanting to tell the Leo Frank story, and I'm kind of like, I think it is a good thing that these two men who, um, like the book writer and Jason Robert Brown, like seem to have a very personal connection to like this story and this person specifically. So I think like, I am happy that they like wanted to tell this story, but I think it's interesting like that this is still the story that gets like the attention when yeah. those others didn't. And I think they do try to lend like a little bit of um, light to that. Like there's a song at the opening of act two um, where it's two black characters and they are basically like, hmm, maybe they'll care when it happens to one of us. Probably not though. And you know, so like, it, I think they do lend some of that to it, but it's still, of course, like focuses on Leo Frank, which I still think, I don't know, I'm like a little conflicted about it because I still think it's good because like, I do think it's an important story to know and it like always- And also I don't me. want, I don't want exactly. Jason Robert Brown writing yeah. that music. No. <laughs> and I'm glad he didn't decide to, like, I, I think he chose the right, story yeah. <laughs> um but I think both, it's like I think both are true yeah yeah I just think it's like crazy that people don't know about this also like I, mm. I don't know I it was like really prevalent growing up honestly there's a chance I did learn it and forgot about it but <laughs> it definitely wasn't like a like something I I remember like that being yeah. a big thing in history classes or something yeah okay now I kind of want to go into I think this musical excels so my first point is I kind of like that Leo sucks. Like I don't <laughs> like him. And I like that because I think in a lot of ways, he's like kind of a moral paragon. Um, and Ben Brantley said this in his New York Times review that like the musical has this sense of like, look at what the evil mob is doing to this innocent man. And so that's kind of what I mean. Like when I say he's a moral paragon is like, you have absolutely no doubt that he is innocent the entire time. Like no doubt or at least watching it and maybe I like have too much background with it but there's no doubt to me that he is innocent when you're watching this show yeah and I think if they lent like that same clarity to him as a person I would have felt like a bit hit over the head with it you know like I like the fact that he's like kind of cold he's a little elitist he's very self-involved I like that I like having more complexity in characters because like guess what? No one deserves to be lynched, even if they suck. So, but I do think they could have lent a little more complexity to some of the characters who turn on Leo, like, especially in the first acts. Like, I, they don't really show us, like, a bunch of the leaning on, except in the Jim Conley case, especially, like, with some of the girls and, um, like, the, I think his maid is one of the people who ends up turning on him. I feel like it would have been nice to, like, get a little more complexity there. Although I do like the fact that the girls turning on him feels like very crucible. <laughs> <Just kind of laughs> <fun. laughs> 
Um, I also really like the way this show portrays political opportunism, which I think is like very scary, especially today, like it always is, but I think like it's kind of a hot topic lately. Um, It's a little heavy handed. I don't think this musical really has like the best book and the mob mentality aspects of this and some of the side characters, like I said, are a bit one note, but I still think it's like fairly clear and well executed that the reason Dorsey and the governor and I think Tom Watson is the publisher who's like crazy right-wing blah, 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 who ended up becoming a senator. The reason they do what they do is out of political opportunity and to advance their own, you know, way. Um, especially in the case of Dorsey, who, like I said, was governor twice. <laughs> and I think there's a version of this where, like, they could have made, like, people truly, truly evil. Like, they're only there because people are like, oh, we want to kill this guy, you know? And, like, uh-huh. I like the fact that I don't think Dorsey could give a shit whether it was him or not. Like, I just think there's this guy. We've got a certain atmosphere after the death of this little girl. We have two of these, like, things that are colliding like anti-semitism and like anger over little girls and child labor and it was just politically opportunistic for him to like oh I'm gonna win this I'm gonna go after this person and I think that's scary and that still happens so I think in a way like that should that part of the show is like very timeless I think the first act is really strong, particularly again, because of, of the sort of like crucible like aspects of it where the girls are coming together to accuse him. And like, that's very scary. And you don't get the sense that they're, I think what I also like about it is you don't get the sense that they are like lying or that it's malicious. So that's like very anti-crucible, <laughs> um, but it doesn't feel malicious anyway. It just feels like our friend died. And, you know, if they're saying that this is why it happened, then that must be true. You know what I mean? It has like yeah, that, much that feel. In that in that scenario too, like putting myself in their shoes, like I worked in high school with some of my best friends. And let's say that like something had happened to one of them. We all hated our boss who was a dick to all of us, including yeah. our friend. And like, there's other evidence pointing there. I'd be like, yeah, he's a dick. He probably, he made unwanted advances at me. I wouldn't be surprised if he did, you know, like I totally understand that perspective, to be honest. (laughs) And I also, I don't know, part of me was thinking today, like it is making unwanted advances does not a murderer make, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, So like, mm -hmm. maybe he was kind of creepy. It doesn't mean he killed anyone, you know? So like, it's just, it's hard, but I like that aspect of it a lot. Um, I think the come up to my office sequence is so frightening. I think the entirety of the trial is done really well. I really like the framing device of Confederate Memorial Day. It happens at the beginning. It happens kind of in the middle. Like she, his wife comes to visit him in prison one day and she's like, oh, it's been a year. I'm like, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> and then it happens at the end and you kind of get a sense that like, it's not going to stop. It's very bleak. And again, I said, I like the setup of the musical starting kind of with the Civil War and then like turning it into this reverence and like yearning for the Confederacy that unfortunately people still have. I really love the music. I, I told you I'm a slut for Jason Robert Brown. The man loves a musical motif and he really loves it here. The like yes. dream of Atlanta set to that tune that's like dun 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 Yeah, I think two of the best sequences. Oh my God. Two of the best sequences in the show are the funeral sequence where they don't make sense. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. the factory girl sequence with the like, he da da da, I turn my head so good. 
good. And I do think, I was going to say, I think this is one of the more serious, like dark subject matter musicals that is, that I've seen that like really works pretty well. Mm. Like it's no cabaret. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think it does a fairly good job at tackling like a very serious subject matter with like the proper weight that I don't <laughs> think musicals often have like it's and not to say like like there are serious themes in Oklahoma there are serious themes in falsettos there are serious themes in like a lot of musicals but I this whole musical is like yeah that's that's what I was gonna <laughs> a <say>. trial <laughs> well yeah. I feel like typically that kind of stuff I don't know if I'm gonna say it's better suited for but has more traditionally been like plays mm-hmm. and yeah. It is hard to to make a musical about an entire like the whole thing is about a really tense and there's like you know, no moments. Not like levity. a joking, yeah. You can't make it except funny. that flirting song at the beginning. Yeah. That's like the only thing. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. And the last thing I wanted to say is I think the Lucille role, Lucille role, is like an absolute banger of a role. Like that is one hundred percent a dream role. She has the best songs in the show. You don't know this man in all the ways to time like that duet, of course. But mm-hmm. what am I waiting for? And do it alone. Do it alone might be my favorite one. It's like the one she sings to him at the beginning of Act Two, and he's like, "No, I don't need your help." And she's like, "You fucking idiot! You're in prison. <laughs> <laughs> you do need my help, okay?" Yeah, I just think, and I thought of the production we watched, which is a college production. The girl who played Lucille was like the best by far. Yes, I agree. She's she incredible. Was very good. Yeah. That's really all I have to say. I hope I articulated all of that well. I felt like it was a lot. And like, I could say a lot more, but I just, I think this is like not a perfect musical by any means. And there are a lot of like complicated themes to dive into and it's really difficult to get all of it right. But I think like they did a really good job with what they had, it had, if that makes sense. And like, I understand the impulse to focus on the relationship and I don't think it's a bad impulse. I just think like they use that as like their kind of touchstone cornerstone, which like Jason Robert Brown does that a lot. And I often, I said this about Bridges in Madison County. I wish it's like, kind of like, if you're going to do that, I feel like it needs to be pared down more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll kind of talk about that. Like, I guess a little bit. In my yeah. Parade's but. a huge cast. Yeah, it's a ton of people and like a ton of characters because like you've got all these suspects, you've got all these people who came and testified against him, you've got the governor, you've got the prosecution, you've got his defense lawyer. Like, there's just so many people involved, mm-hmm. um, so it's hard to like lend focus to other aspects of the show. Yeah, I'd agree with that. <clears throat> yeah, I I agree. I think it's overall it is a good show. Mm-hmm. Um, the music is amazing. There are some incredible incredible songs in there. Mm-hmm. Um, not without its faults, but overall, no. like it's really solid. I really wish that we had been able to see a version with like Carolee Carmelo or Brent Carver. Yeah, or even like a tour cast. I honestly like no shade to this college. We, I, we've watched a, a few different like regional or college. This is one of the better ones. I think this yeah. is probably the best mm-hmm. one that we've seen yeah, that agree. wasn't like a bootleg on Broadway. 
so yeah they were great but I would still yeah. love to see it with like a professional Me too I wonder if it'll ever I think it was like well received for the most part at the time but kind of controversial and it's pretty liberal with its use of racial slurs which mm -hmm. I guess like makes sense but I think it was a little controversial for that at the time but yeah yeah that's kind of my thought <laughs> that's all I got to we can talk about okay. it falsettos oh, okay let's move on to falsettos then okay so context from, from me is that I moved to New York when falsettos um opened the Broadway revival mm -hmm. and I got to see it and I had never heard I literally never even like I don't even think I had heard of it before so I like fell in love immediately and then yeah as Sammy said it's there's available on Broadway HD there's like a pro shop version of it <clears throat> and I think I've seen it like the pro shot five or six times mm -hmm. now. So I've probably seen this show, that exact version of it, like seven times. <laughs> and I have a lot of thoughts about it and a lot of love for this show. Um, and it's also why when I was talking about Come From Away, which is <clears throat> also a 10 out of 10 for me, it was this same Tony season. Um, oh. And Dear Evan Hansen and Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1912 and Miss Saigon. And like, there's so much going on that year. Wait. Was Christian Bale nominated Dolly. for this? Yeah, he was nominated okay. for Best Actor. Thank Christ. He and then Andrew Reynolds, so Andrew Reynolds and Brandon Uranowitz were nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And then Stephanie J. Block was nominated for Supporting. And Not? Two, no, she was. Okay, I was like, She was nominated. What? No, <laughs> okay, no she was, but I thought she was going to win, but she lost to, um, what's her name, Rachel Bay Jones. From oh, Germany. she was really good. She was yeah, like, I'm not like mad about it because I do think she is like a star of that show, but I still, yeah. I just love Stephanie J. Block. And I think Me too. You're not alone. Um, okay. An initial thought. <laughs> this might be a hot take. Um, initial thought I have. The, the way people praise and feel in general when they talk about Sondheim is how I feel about the music in this show. So I was going to say, this sounds like it could be like kind of the Sondheim-ish show. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you could have like, told me he wrote this. When people talk about Sondheim, I he, like the, the ways they talk about his lyricism and like great. all of that, it's falsettos to me. I, yeah, um, I can totally see that. <laughs> and, okay, obviously, I don't dislike Sondheim, but we all know we, I have a complicated relationship. Mr. Um, Sondheim, like, he swores at times. Dragging you. Um, but Falsettos <laughs> is, I think, it's, it's, I think it has all of those qualities of, like, form and how the form mat matches the tone and the lyricism it's so witty and clever and it all like everything is one the music the lyrics the show everything that's happening just feels really tied together in a really clean way um so I love that so there there are on there are three main themes about this show that I want to like dive in and talk about um and the first of which which is fitting because it's how we open the show is Judaism. So <laughs> the show literally opens, the opening number is called Four Jews in a Room Bitching. Wow, wait, this uh, could have been, the category for this show could have been Judaism. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would want to call Parade a show about Judaism. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but I see the vibes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so Judaism is so central 
to this show, to all of these characters in a way that is really comedic at times, but in a way that more than anything I think is real. Um, and it's, it's like their culture, which is funny because it's not, it's very much not about the religion. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really common thing in Judaism is like it being more about the culture and the family and and the that side of things than in terms of like actually believing in, in a deity and, and making that the number one priority. Mm-hmm. And I think you get a really deep dive into that um, and into that family dynamic. And it's really, really, it, it drives the whole show, I think. Um, and that's what you, that's what they tell you from the beginning. They're literally like dressed up at the beginning and singing about how there are four Jews in a room bitching, yeah. um, four men in the show or th- three men and one boy. Um, and then Stephanie J. Block is like coming in being like, these little shits, <laughs> they're idiots. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and th- yeah, throughout the show, we follow this like journey of um, eventually Jason, who is, who's a really interesting character. And is like, mm-hmm. to me, kind of one of the focal points of this show. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jason is the kid who's 10 years old in the first act and 12 years old in the second act. Yeah. And he's like this, he's, he's kind of like, I don't think it's a the trope, but kind of the like smart kid, kid that's like smarter than their parents trope. He's a New like, York lonely boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and is really neurotic and really similar to his father, which scares him for a lot of reasons. Yeah. A lot of this story um, relates to his bar mitzvah and the planning of it. Um, and it's really interesting because I think that, I think that all of the men in this show are children (laughs) yes in a lot of ways and I think that the bar mitzvah is a like graduation into manhood and and masculinity for all of the characters in the show not just um so yeah I really like that and that that brings me to my next point which I have a lot of thoughts on which is masculinity which is I think a massive massive theme of this show So the first place I want to talk about it is in Marvin and Wizard's relationship. I think it is riddled with masculinity. And I don't think that's inherently bad, but I think that there are also issues with taking that too far or becoming a toxic toxic display of masculinity. And they have moments of that. Um, And I think at the core of it, the reason all that's happening is because Marvin is applying this like, heterosexual lens to their relationship. Like he wants to treat their relationship like it was him and Trina still, and he's Mm -hmm. the breadwinner and Marvin's his like sweet little trophy thing and they make Mm -hmm. it work and they have a happy family. And on top of that, he like, I think he really wants to be seen as like masculine still, despite his queerness Mm -hmm. in, in a way that I both understand from like my very, very early days of, mm-hmm. of coming out and not wanting to be like, quote unquote, that gay to mm-hmm. now like understand, wait, that's like just living your most authentic self. Like, obviously I don't yeah. think that now, but I do think that Marvin is a kind of person that would be like, oh, I'm not like those gays, like they're really yeah. femme, you know, that kind of thing. And I think a lot of his masculinity issues are rooted in that. And you see it in, in how it affects his relationships mm-hmm. with everyone around him, with his kid, with Wizard, who breaks up with him eventually, with Trina, who he hits at some point. Like, yeah, it's, it's toxic. Yeah. 
And, and that's kind of when it all comes up to a boil, I think. Yeah, that's one side of masculinity. The second, which I think is really related, is I want to I wanna talk to her a little bit about this song, March of the Falsettos, and it's important. <laughs> because when I first saw the show on Broadway, I saw that song and was like living for it, but also was like, what the fuck is what this? What the fuck like, is going on? Yeah. Why is this in the show? <laughs> um, and upon watching it seven more times, I have, a few, <laughs> <laughs> I have a few more thoughts. And after listening a lot more closely to the lyrics and the context. So here's my take on that. Leading up to March of the Falsettos, we have Trina's song. And it's basically Stephanie J. Block killing it, of course, singing about how she's like, there's a line she says, I'm tired of all the happy, frightened men who rule the world. Um, (laughs) And then she says, it's a shame that men who aren't men, but aren't, but aren't, oh, men who aren't men, but aren't boys, aka like older than boys, but not emotionally mature enough to be a man. Mm -hmm. And, And that she's like, not only is it the people that are immediately around her and their family, I think she she makes a case that it's like, it is the society and that yeah. she hates that, but is also like, I have to live in this and I have to find happiness and, and succeed in this. And she's, and that's also when she kind of start, decides, I think that she's gonna like marry, um, oh my God, what's his name? The psychiatrist. Mindle. Mindle. Uh, <laughs> yeah so I love that because it's both a like empowering like her decision but it's also like a yes I'm making this decision but here are all the societal pressures that are leading me to do this yeah. so anyway love that song that leads directly into March of the Falsettos which is like one of the weirdest campiest like numbers <laughs> I've ever seen um, so basically the four men in the show, Wizard, Marvin, Jason, and Mendel, all are wearing these like little like Phantom of the Opera almost. <laughs> like, I... <laughs> They're like glowing. They're also yeah. like, almost like neon. <laughs> yeah, these like neon glowing like things over their eyes and um, have these really weird like white out. Yeah, these really weird outfits and sing this whole song like totally in falsetto. And in a really, it's really childlike. It feels like it could be on like a Coco Melon, like that kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like really catered towards kids almost. And it, it feels really like immature and weird. And that takes me to why this show is even called Falsettos. Mm-hmm. So I, here's my take. I think that Falsettos refers to our falsetto voice and what that represents. I think it represents a lot of things. I think it represents being childlike. I think also immature. And I think feminine and queer are all mm-hmm. things that are associated with like, like you register up here. Like it's really yeah. childlike. Like that vibe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that is, that is what all of these men are right now. They're all like kids. They don't have the capability to like think critically through their own emotions and figure out how their actions affect other people. And I also think this whole number is really queer code. I mean, it's, I don't even know if queer code mm. is the right word. <laughs> yeah, it just is. It's not queer. Yeah. But like... um, and yeah, I, I think that what this song does is like literally show 
like men in society not working on themselves and how yeah. even like even this person that in the song before Trina just agreed to marry mm-hmm. is this child who she like doesn't have the ability to like connect with on a deeper mm-hmm. emotional level and he's a fucking psychiatrist <laughs> but he like can't even work within himself I'm not change. sure how good he is at his job <laughs> yeah <laughs> that whole like, member where he's like what the fuck is wrong with you people which I guess like you have to if you're gonna do that you kind of have to have that candor with yourself like yeah. these people are, like you know what I mean but yeah. still <laughs> um yeah so anyway I think that that there's so much masculinity wrapped up in this I think it's a catalyst for a lot of the stuff in the show and I, and then what's interesting and to tie it all fully together with my third point um and the third like theme of the show is AIDS and I think that first what I want to say to tie this in with masculinity is that I think that Wizard is obviously the most like feminine out there character and I also think that he is like the first of everyone to like quote unquote become a man and wise yeah. up. And I also think that like of everyone in Jason's life, I think that Wizard is the most like father-like almost figure for Jason. Yeah, I was gonna say it's interesting that he invites him to the baseball game two years after they've broken up. Like yeah. so he's obviously thinking about him and like yeah. he's the and, one and they also, get to be like. like you need to go to therapy and he's like well what does wizard think like exactly yeah Yeah, he Mm -hmm. cares so much about wizard's Mm -hmm. opinion and like sees wizard i think like i in the ways that he's scared of becoming like his dad and becoming gay he doesn't have that feeling with wizard like he looks up Mm -hmm. to him and sees all the good in him um Mm -hmm. and then i think that like i think wizard's diagnosis also kind of like ages him a lot in terms of his wisdom and and like acceptance of death and and turning inward Mm -hmm. um and is the first person that kind of like yeah I don't know for lack of a better (laughs) word becomes a man and all of that is tied together with with the bar mitzvah happening in the hospital but before I get to that one thing I want to talk about that is one of my favorite parts about this show is the lesbians from next door (laughs) Um, I love them. <laughs> so in the second act, we're introduced to the lesbians from next door, um, played by Betsy Wolf and Tracy Tom, two okay. icons. Seriously. Um, Betsy Wolf was the first, uh, the first Jenna I saw in Waitress, and she was incredible. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and then Tracy Tom's obviously from um Rent. Oh my gosh. I just straight um, icon. <laughs> So I don't know if you knew this, but the the lesbians were added into the show um, as like a nod to lesbians who took care of gay men during the AIDS crisis. Um, And also, I think I this wasn't explicitly said that that was explicitly said by William Finn. An interpretation that I have in addition to that is like this expanding of the family unit in a chosen family way because the lesbians like very much are a part of this family mm-hmm. this like twisted convoluted mess of a family yeah and I think that that is a really like true thing I think a lot of people have non-traditional families that like have the exact same meaning and impact as a, a blood like traditional family mm-hmm. um, and I love that it should like that I also love that Tracy Tom's character, oh my God, I'm Cordelia and 
I'm forgetting everyone's name right now, but I forget her name. Missy Tom's yeah. character um, <laughs> is a doctor. So, so she's actually the first person to introduce like mm-hmm. the concept of AIDS to the show. She has there's this whole like bit where she she and her um, her wife are. Well, okay, actually, one more thing. I'm so, I have so many thoughts. No, it's One okay. more thing I want to say now that I'm talking about the lesbians about masculinity is I think that another reason the lesbians are in this show is to model, like, what a healthy relationship can look like to mm-hmm. Marvin. And I don't think it's any, like, I think, yes, there's there's a big part of it that is the, you know, the nod to lesbians helping gay men during the, the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. And I also think that, with all the talk of of masculinity, like removing that from the equation and just seeing, not that all lesbians have happy relationships, but seeing that as like people who have worked on themselves and are modeling happiness and and being together in a positive way. um, I love that component. But anyway, Tracy Tom's character is, has this little bit with Cordelia where she talks about how perfect her life is, how she's like saving lives all day, And then she gets to come home to her beautiful wife who she loves and has this amazing life. Then suddenly in that like motif, the tone changes pretty drastically. Mm -hmm. And she's like a lot more somber and sings something that kills, something infectious, something Mm -hmm. that spreads from one man to another. And then from there, we go immediately into the racquetball scene where the second one where Wizard is like, basically passes out and that's the from then on the the show is about wizards aids diagnosis so yeah it's i i think that the way that i think that those three themes of judaism masculinity and aids all are really prominent individual themes that also as i kept saying like tie together so well like with masculinity and judaism the bar mitzvah being like this this time when everyone graduates into their masculinity yeah. like I think that it's so well done and then I also think that it's it's a really really great representation um and I think mm-hmm. it's a well done one um and a big part of why William Finn wanted to to do this and to write this was because he didn't think that people like knew or or re- mm-hmm. were remembering properly the the impact of AIDS and so I think that's yeah a beautiful motivation and I think the show is extremely well done and yeah I also outside of those three things I really quickly wanted to talk about the set um, which I think Mm -hmm. is really cool so the set is just like a backdrop of the New York skyline with like tons of like oddly shaped blocks that start off in a big cube and throughout the whole show every single person in the cast is moving these blocks around all the time to make such different structures to represent wherever they are. And one thing that I think that this kind of like refers to, which is I think a theme of the show is even like in the, in telling this story itself, the actors and actresses are laboring to arrange a comfortable life for themselves. And they also have to readjust it like all the time to make it, good and what it needs to be for for themselves and their loved ones um so I I don't know I think it's a really cool concept it's really I think it's a cool like minimalism vibe um and I think it's it's well executed so yeah I never thought about that I like that a lot I was gonna say you said a lot of stuff and mine isn't gonna be as smart but like I thought 
I mean, the chemistry just like at large between oh Andrew Reynolds and Christian Borle was like insane. Unbelievable. They were sexy. Like I was yeah, like, I kept saying oh that my to God. God. I watched <laughs> this with John, my boyfriend. And I kept being like, their chemistry is insane. And John it was a like, hot. <laughs> it was like very sexy. Like there's a point where, and I think it's even at the end, it is like the last song. So Andrew Reynolds' character has died, Wizard has died. And he like comes back as kind of like a spirit ghost to talk to Marvin. And Christian Borle looked him up and down. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like, wow, my heart is beating faster over here. <laughs> like, they were just like, I mean, like they had like great emotional and like like intellectual chemistry as well. Yeah. But I was like, really, I don't know. They were I bought it. Yeah, I bought yeah, it. it. I totally gone. bought it. It was yeah. great. Yeah, um, definitely agree with that. And mm-hmm. I also just think that like Stephanie J. Block boots the house down. Oh my God, it. every single time. God slay mama. Like unbelievable. I'm breaking down. So like funny. goes down. She's so funny. She is so funny. Her comedic timing is impeccable. Impeccable. Um, I know we talked about that in nine to five, but every time I'm like, wow, she is so fucking funny. Like, so funny. She is just such an unbelievably good actress Mm -hmm. that like, in a way that so many actresses, I just like think I can't see in them is able to sing act so well. I think yeah, like seamless. there are there are a lot of musical theater actresses who are like incredible actresses and incredible singers, but like Stephanie J. Block's singing is acting, and it's yeah. like unbelievable how how the vocal performance work. is like more than just singing. Like it's mm-hmm. it's really good. Yeah. Oh, shall we recreate? Oh, we shall. I'm pretty excited. Mine isn't going to take very long, um, okay, but cool. I was thinking about like kind of kind of like I said I usually enjoy like Jason Robert Brown stuff a little more when he's like pared down like a last five years or a um songs from a new world like that kind of more minimalist Mm -hmm. style and I also think that like this show it would have been interesting to see like a little more outside of the couple which I know those sound like kind of contradictory but like to see like oh like why did you know why did these girls feel like this or like why did their maid decide that, you know, why was she turned? Was it easy? Was it difficult? Like, what's going on? And I know those sound kind of contradictory, but I was thinking that this could, like, make a very interesting Laramie Project style show. Um, so if you don't know what the Laramie Project is, it is a play. Um, it's a 2000 play. It is based on the murder of Matthew Shepard in the 1990s. Um, he was a gay student at the University of Wyoming, and was like killed in a horrible, brutal way. And it was like a very, it um, drew attention to hate crimes and hate crime laws in various states across the US. And it's an example, if it's called verbatim theater, or at least that's what it's called according to the Wikipedia page. And I don't know if you could do that with this because it happened in the early 1900s. So like, what do we really know about what they actually said? I guess we have court transcripts maybe, I don't know. Um, but the play, The Laramie Project, like draws on interviews conducted by this theater company with the inhabitants of the town, which is Laramie, Wyoming, and published news reports and like company members, their own kind of like journal entries from the time. So you have like eight actors, they portray a ton of different characters, and it's all like these short scenes with like 
a lot of it's just kind of like monologues. I saw it, um, I think I was in like middle school or high school, I saw a production of it. And a lot of it is like monologues or like sitting there and kind of like speaking from a journal entry. So it's really pared down, but there's a lot of different characters and like a lot of different perspectives to take into account. So I thought this could be an interesting like take on the Leo Frank story, um, perhaps in setting it in kind of the interrogation aspect of it or like making it kind of a series of monologues or short scenes in that way. And that way we could spend more time with characters like Mary Fagan's friends, like Minnie, who is their maid, Jim Conley, Newt Lee, and you could play with like perspective a lot as well, I think. So the Laramie Project is structured in three acts. So I just kind of took that. So the first act of this would be I was thinking about this and I think it would actually hit a lot harder if you go in thinking perhaps Leo Frank did it. Because mm. like I said, and I think like this is a very intentional because I read a couple of interviews with um, JRB and the writer whose name I forget again, Uri, I think, I'm sorry oh. if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, but they are very much like Leo Frank did not do it. He's an innocent man and they have a very personal connection to it. So I completely understand. And I don't think he did it either. So like, I understand the impulse to be like, we are not going to even like cast blame on him at all. But I do think there's like a certain narrative structure that might hit a little bit harder if you like kind of think maybe he did it at least mm -hmm. at the beginning. And Can honestly, like you in the same headspace as, as those people, everyone yeah, the else, people in yeah. that town. And Not then you get to sit there yeah. and be like, wow, I suck. Yeah. <laughs> um, and honestly, like reading, like I said, kind of reading through a lot of this chronologically, you find yourself going like, that's weird. Why did he do that? Or like, oh, maybe he was acting weird, which is like totally, it can be like a mom mentality thing. It, it happens, like we're human beings. And like I said, I think like JRB stuff like works better in smaller settings, high bridges in Madison County. So that's what I would do. And then I think you could kind of set this like in interrogations, but kind of take the prosecutor out of it in the first act. So you're just getting like testimony sequences, but kind of solo. So Minnie or some of the girls saying what happened. And also maybe some monologues from Lucille and Leo as they're kind of going through their own stuff. So it's still moved kind of chronologically. Like maybe we open up with Leo Frank or with Newt Lee, kind of like right after he finds Mary Fagan's body move through the factory girls, Frankie Epps, Minnie, and Jim Conley. And I still think a lot of the music would work well, like in a smaller setting, like You Don't Know This Man particularly comes to mind. I think that is basically like a monologue song that she could actually sing in this version. Um, it don't make sense, factory girls, etc. So that would be the first act. And I think in the second act, you can add Dorsey, like the prosecutor in, and have these retractions, but also sort of flash back to some of the interrogations that you saw in the first act. But this time you like see slash hear the prosecutor and how, or the investigators, it might not have been him specifically, but I think he did lean on people. So how the detectives or how Dorsey might have influenced some of them. So whereas like they were saying things in the first act that made you think one thing this time around, you like hear the question or you hear the pressure or you hear whatever it might be. I think this could also incorporate some of the perspectives of people about the type of attention the event is getting and what happened. So perhaps we get that song from the two black characters at the beginning of the second act. Maybe they could be like more established characters and talk about the perspective of what's going on and why this particular case is getting so much attention, how that makes them feel. 
you could also get the perspective of like why these people chose to lie in their testimony. There's the coercion aspect of it, but you could dig into like, was it fear? Was it a promise of some sort? Was it this? Was it that? And kind of get that perspective. And there's also an interesting moment. So I feel like this might go kind of like towards the lynching or like end with this particular scene. So there's an interesting moment in the lynching scene where one of the guys is like, come on, he didn't do it. Like they're basically like, say you did it, say you did it. And he refuses. And a guy is like, I don't think he did it, guys. Like, I think we're wrong. And there are other small moments of the show that are interesting like that. And I think that would be something cool to explore. And then the third act, I figured we could fast forward a lot because um, Leo Frank was officially pardoned in like the 1980s. And part, there were two like pushes to make it happen basically. And they failed the first time, but succeeded the second time. And one of them, I believe was someone came forward who worked as like an errand boy or an office boy, like in the um, pencil factory as a child and came forward and said like, I saw Jim Conley alone with Mary Fake, like with the body. And that contradicted Jim Conley's story. And of course, like all the people involved with this are dead at this point. So like, what are we going to do? But that was a kind of part of like the push for the pardoning. So I thought it'd be interesting to look at like maybe some testimony from that person, looking at what he thinks about all this, like why, if this is true, like why he's kept quiet this long. And then I can't remember where I saw this, but I was discussing it with my mom. So I know it happened. I couldn't find it. But a couple years ago, I think it was like around an anniversary of this, an article came out that basically like was able to like look at license plates or something from the lynching photo. It was able to like pull some sort of identifying information of like who these people actually were who kidnapped him. And it was like, I know one of them was like related to, I think an Atlanta journal reporter at the time or something like that, or like an editor, or maybe like he was an editor, like later on, like there are important people in the community. And I think like some of those families are still pretty prominent in Marietta today. So it'd be interesting to like talk to people who are related to the people who committed this act and like get their kind of aspect on the legacy as well. So that's kind of it. I just thought it'd be like an interesting take and perhaps a way to like put more context into the story which I think some of that context is a little lacking because it's so focused on the trial yeah yeah um, oh I like that thanks okay mine's kind of weird <laughs> no I'm excited <laughs> okay mine is based on something that I think about a lot which mm-hmm. is I have a theory that like a lot, a lot of male identifying people like don't use their resting voice. Like they don't use it where it's naturally placed. Okay. I don't think that they like relax their voices. I think that a lot of people like present lower voices (laughs) for the sake of like masculinity. And I don't even think a lot of them know it, but like, I don't know, maybe this is me, but especially growing up in the South, like, I, I know so many people who, like, yeah, like, it's just, like, you talk like this, and it's, like, so far down here, but, like, it's, that's, like, not, that's not naturally where I think a lot of people voices rest, like. That's kind of how I, I feel about, like, boys in general, like, boys in college, I talk like this, like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, that is not how you talk it's in like, the office. And, like, and like, I, I, 
am a bass like in choir I was always like singing the lowest parts I have a really I do have a naturally deep voice but it still it rests naturally Mm -hmm. here I can go down you know like I can (laughs) down there if I want but like that's not where it rests so anyway that's a whole sidetrack but I was thinking of falsettos as a concept and then thought about that as kind of like the opposite of it so in this recreate we're going to create an opposite falsettos called fake (laughs) faces which is what I'm naming that Um, so in this in this show fake faces um a man's wife leaves him for a woman so Mm -hmm. she's the lesbian and he's alone raising a kid and what this sparks so then he's the main one and what it sparks for him is him having to like deal with and unlearn his toxic masculinity that is like shattered when his wife Mm -hmm. leaves him not only leaves him but leaves him for a woman and that like Mm -hmm. tears his masculinity apart so I wanted to do I'm doing a song rewrite yeah uh, okay. I, I love, love this. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm rewriting March of the falsettos okay uh, as March of the fake faces <laughs> okay. and I only did the first like couple of verses um because it's a long song but cool. I did some of it okay <laughs> and I'm gonna do it in the fake bass oh my god incredible because okay so in March of the falsettos it's like the, if, if you haven't seen it yeah it's literally like yeah. March, March. so this one would be all about like instead of instead of exposing like the childishness of masculinity it's pointing out like the the having to like present a certain way um okay okay march 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 of the fake faces (laughs) march of the fake faces (laughs) is Man enough to march to march of the fake bases. Keep a masculine appearance, show your perseverance as you march, march, march of the fake bases, march of the fake bases. Mm, fuck. Okay, wait. <laughs> I can't remember how this part goes. <laughs> okay, you know what? We're just going to read the last bit. Okay, okay. <laughs> Um, march a little bit, march a little bit, march a little bit longer. No allowance for male affection. It is just natural selection. Less of a man because she is leaving. This deep voice can be so deceiving. March, march, march of the Wow, that was so good. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So hit me up if you want to write a song about fake presentation. Yeah. <laughs> Lowering your voice amazing wow <laughs> that was long those shows are dense <laughs> yeah, they are both dense yeah okay do you want to talk about next week yeah so um next week will be the last episode of yeah. season two of Raid debate recreate which is kind of wild it's insane it's um really after insane. tomorrow sammy or after tomorrow after next week's episode we will have discussed 64 <gasps> together wow uh, i told oh my God. I, someone that i can't remember who i told this to but someone was like are there even that many musicals? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully there are a ton more so we can keep going. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, we got at least a couple more in us. Oh my god, I hope so. I think so. I think um, so too. 
Do you want to announce the category? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Next week's category is Where Would You Rather Live? Wow. Honestly, it's a pretty tough choice. It so. honestly is. <laughs> I think it's a really tough question. And I it's think it's, up. honestly, this is our most clever category name choice, I think. I think so too. I said oh, it. Oh, man. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you made it this far, you can follow us on Twitter at Rate Debate One and follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Rate Debate Recreate. We will see you next week. See you next Last week. episode. Last episode of season two. We oh, love you. Love y'all. Bye. Rate. Rate.